morning, everyone. Uh, let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we are just shells full of dust, given invisible but rational souls and made new by your unseen power of grace. They were not rare objects of valuable price, but ones that have nothing and are nothing, although we're chosen by you from eternity past, given to Christ and born again. We're deeply convinced of the evil and misery of a sinful state, of the vanity of creatures, but also of the sufficiency of Christ. When you would guide us, we often control ourselves. When you would be sovereign, we rule ourselves. When you would take care of us, we help ourselves. When we should depend on your provision, instead we supply ourselves. When we should submit to your providence, instead we follow our own wills. When we should study, love, honor, and trust you, we serve ourselves. We fault and correct your commands to suit ourselves. Instead of looking for your praise, we look to man's praise. By nature, we're idolaters. Lord, it's our great desire to bring our hearts back to you. Convince us that we can't be our own God, or make ourselves happy, nor be our own Christ to restore our joy, nor be our own Holy Spirit to teach, guide, and rule ourselves. God, help us to see that only your grace does this by providential affliction. For when our pride is great, you humble us. When pleasure is our all, you turn those cheap pleasures into bitterness for us. God, take away our roaming eyes, our curious ears, our greedy appetites, our lustful hearts. Show us that none of these things can heal our wounded conscience, or support our tottering frame, or uphold our departing spirits. And God, take us then to the cross and leave us there. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right. So pretty much all of us at one point in our life, we've experienced some kind of broken relationship, whether it was a business partner or a friendship or a romantic partner. Maybe there was eventually reconciliation. Maybe there wasn't, and it just remained broken. And yet, very rarely is the fault just on one side. And yet, often our first instinct is to put all the blame on the other person. Or maybe we take some of the blame, but then we just excuse it because what they did was so much worse. What she said hurt us more, and so they deserved what we did or what we said. But maybe we have a truly good friend who grieves with us for a time when this relationship breaks. But then eventually they help us gain perspective. They help us see our own faults in this situation. Um, after all, faithful are the wounds of a friend, as it says in Proverbs, or blows that would cleanse away evil strokes make clean the innermost parts, Proverbs 20. 30. So that's what I want us to accomplish here today in our message, um, to help give us all, me included, uh, more of a perspective on a situation. Because when we look around the room and see 
Small numbers compared to what it was a year ago, two years ago. You feel a bunch of different emotions. You can feel overwhelming despair, maybe a hint of hope. You can feel anger or sadness or just confusion on how we even got here or where we're going in the future. And the, the easy response to all of that is to become embittered and place blame on people who've left or on others that are still here. Or maybe to even just hunker down in our own shells and try to focus on how we can just maintain everything here and just survive for a little longer. But the hard thing and the necessary thing, the response is to remember the gospel and repent so that we can live and thrive once again as a church. Um, so we're going to look at two passages here today. The first main passage that we're going to be in is in Ezekiel chapter 37. So please turn there in your Bibles. So Ezekiel, he was a prophet during the time of the last few kings of Judah. Um, about 100 years before he was born, the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed and exiled by Assyria um, because of Israel's own immorality, their idolatry, their bloodshed and faithlessness. And for those very same reasons, Judah is quickly heading towards that same fate by the Babylonian Empire. So at this time of Ezekiel, Egypt and Babylon are at war with one another and Judah's kind of caught in the middle. So there's times when Egypt will come in and put their own king on the, on the throne of Judah. There's times when Babylon instead will come in and there's different factions within Judah. Some are supporting Egypt, some are supporting Babylon. And they're fighting amongst themselves, not sure what to do. And sometimes they're paying tribute to Egypt, sometimes they're paying tribute to Babylon. And eventually... So they're kind of going back and forth. And then in 598 BC, uh, Jerusalem is besieged by Babylon. And during the siege, um, Ezekiel is taken into exile afterwards. Uh, King Jehoiakim dies, and then his son Jehoiachin begins to reign. But then Babylon succeeds in the siege, takes Jehoiachin captive, takes Ezekiel captive and others, and this was actually the second exile. The first happened uh, about eight years earlier. Uh, that's when Daniel was taken into exile. Then eventually, uh, in their fifth year of their exile is when Ezekiel starts. He has this vision as he's by the Kabar River. Um, and, but eventually, while he's in exile, Zedekiah, who was placed on the throne by Babylon. He revolts against Babylon. And a year later, Babylon comes in, destroys Jerusalem. The kingdom of Judah is no more. And more captives are sent into exile. And Ezekiel hears about this in chapter 33, which is just a few chapters before our passage that we're in today. So let's read Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. 
And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you. And you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath. Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. The breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. So, Here in this passage, God takes Ezekiel in this vision to this valley, or some translations say this plain of dry bones. Uh, And he looks upon it, and Judah and Israel are completely decimated. All that's left there is just a valley full of dead and dry bones. And how would you feel if that's the first thing you see in this vision? What once was this promised land flowing with milk and honey, now it just seems to be death. Do you feel despair or hopelessness? Like God had abandoned you and your people. And that's exactly how God's people felt in verse 11. Our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. This time they're questioning whether the promises of God are actually true. Because didn't God promised them that they'd have this land. He promised it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and renewed it in each covenant that he made with his people. Didn't he promise that they'd be a great nation? Didn't God promise them through Moses that he would be their God and they would be his people? And didn't he promise David that he would have a son with an eternal kingdom? But now... They have no land. They are no nation. They have no king. And they're thinking God must have just gone back on his word and abandoned us. However, Moses told them that this exact thing would happen back in Deuteronomy chapter 29. And he told them that when this happens, it's because of their own wicked deeds. So Deuteronomy 29 verse 22 through 28 Moses tells the people, 
It says, In the next generation, your children who rise up after you, and the foreigner who comes from a far land will say, when they see the afflictions of that land and the sicknesses with which the Lord had made it sick, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing, where no plant can sprout an overflow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim. When the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath, all the nations will say, Why has the Lord done this to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then people will say, It is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. The Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are this day. Yet, even amidst Israel's constant rebellion in the wilderness, in the time of the judges, in the time of the kings, God never abandoned his people. He constantly sent them prophets to speak to them, to call them back to him, call them back to repentance. Um, and just a few chapters before where we're at in Ezekiel 37, uh, there's these great verses in Ezekiel 33 that just show the heart of God. And he tells Israel, he tells them, talking to Ezekiel, And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus have you said, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? God is telling them there's no amount of sin that's too great for him to forgive that would prevent him from restoring them if they only repent and turn from their ways and go to him for forgiveness. Like we see this in David's psalm, Psalm 51, after he sins with Bathsheba and he comes to God for repentance, he tells God, and he's like, a broken and contrite heart, O Lord, you're not going to despise that. However, Israel, though, they, they don't repent. They're hard of heart, they're stubborn, and they're stuck in their own ways. And so just a few verses after that in Ezekiel 33, after God displays his heart for them and desire for them to repent and come back to him to restore them, Ezekiel finds out that from a messenger that Jerusalem has been destroyed. It's been struck down by Babylon under God's discipline. Fulfilling what Moses had prophesied back in Deuteronomy 29. But there's there's chapters after Deuteronomy 29. Uh, And in Deuteronomy 30, God, through Moses, gives this great promise to his people. He promises that Israel, after their exile, they're going to be restored. That he's going to gather his people from the lands where they have been scattered. And that, once again, they're going to prosper And he will circumcise their hearts so that they can actually freely obey and follow God. So in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 6 and 8, he tells them this, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. 
So even though to Israel and Judah at this time, it seems hope is lost, that just they're done, they're, there's no more hope, that hope is not lost. God gave them this promise. He's in control. He, he knew this would happen. And he's promising a way of restoration. So Ezekiel picks up and carries on that promise in the chapter right before this in Ezekiel 36. He reiterates that promise and promises that, hey, God will once again gather his people, bring them back to the land, and they're going to prosper, and God's going to completely cleanse them from their sins. So in Ezekiel 36, uh, just a few verses before where we're at, in 24 through 27, it says, I'll take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I'll cleanse you. And I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit. And I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. So this restoration that Ezekiel promises his people, it's purely by grace. Israel does nothing to earn it. It's only because also in Ezekiel 36, God tells them that, hey, it's not for your sake that I'm going to do this. It's for the sake of my name. Just as Moses told them that Israel wasn't chosen for this land because they were a great and mighty nation or because they were righteous in Deuteronomy 7 and 9, but he chose them to make his name great because they were weak and to remove the wicked nations that were already in the land. So this passage in Ezekiel 37, this passage that starts with despair, it doesn't end there because God is giving him this vision of, hey, this is what it's like now, but this is what's going to happen. I'm going to accomplish what I promised back in Deuteronomy and what you're reiterating in Ezekiel 36. And so God asks Ezekiel, can these bones live? And how does Ezekiel respond? He says, oh Lord God, you know. Because he recognizes if these dead and dry bones are to live, can only happen by God's decree. Only God can restore. Only God can actually change their hearts, give them new hearts. Only God can turn death into life. So then God then like, shows Ezekiel exactly how he's going to accomplish this. How, how only he can turn this death into life. And so he tells Ezekiel to prophesy or preach the word of the Lord. And as he speaks, God lays this anew on the bones, causes flesh to grow and covers them with skin and then breathes his spirit into them and they live. And they stand once again in our great army of the Lord. Their graves have been open and they've been raised to life. And God has placed his spirit within them. And now they actually know the Lord and can worship the Lord. And they're only alive because only God can turn death into life. And so we have this amazing picture of the gospel, that this rebellious people who are dead in their sins, they hear the word of God 
and are made alive by the Spirit of God, all completely by the grace of God. So then, after this passage in Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel goes on to say that God's people who once were divided in the northern and southern kingdoms, that they're going to be united and be one people. God's servant David will be their king, and they'll have one shepherd. And all the nations will know that, the God, that God is the Lord. And so when Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the good shepherd, the word of God, when he came to earth and lived, was crucified and killed, buried, resurrected, and then ascended into heaven and poured out his spirit upon his disciples, that's when these very words here in Ezekiel are fulfilled and they came to be. When God poured out his spirit upon his people at Pentecost, they were born again, given new hearts, and made alive in Christ. So one of the very best illustrations that we have in the Bible of God pouring out his spirit and completely turning something that was once dead to something that was alive is the church in Ephesus. In Acts chapter 18 and 19, Apollos starts to preach in the city of Ephesus and uh, what was called Asia. It's kind of modern-day Turkey now. And, but he's not preaching the whole gospel. He's preaching what he knows. He's preaching John's baptism, that the Messiah is coming and we must repent to prepare for his coming. So then Paul comes along and meets some of these disciples of John, and he tells them the whole gospel, that the Messiah has come, that it's Jesus, that he lived and died and then rose again. So these disciples start believing in Jesus, and God pours the Spirit out upon them. And Paul stays there for two years. He's teaching and training up disciples to live out the call of the church, just like back in Acts chapter 2, uh, that they're devoted to teaching and fellowship. They're praying with, meeting with, and breaking bread with one another in each other's homes. They're sharing things in common and helping everyone in need. They're praising and worshiping God with one another. But most of all, they're sharing the good news of Jesus to everyone around them. They're sharing the good news so much so that in Acts 19, verse 10, it says that all the residents of this region in Asia have heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. In fact, so many people are coming to know the Lord that these local silversmiths start a riot because they can't make any money anymore because no one's buying the idols that they're making. And then five to ten years after that, Paul writes his letter to the Ephesians. And he tells them that he never ceases to give thanks to the Lord for them because he's constantly hearing of their faith and of their love toward all the believers. And then in Ephesians 2, he reminds them that they were once dead in their sins and trespasses, but they have been made alive and forgiven by the grace of God, just as we just read in Ezekiel 37. However, things don't stay that way in Ephesus. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. And this will be 
our other main passage that we're going to be in today. So, about 30 years after Paul writes his letter to the Ephesians, John the Apostle has this vision, and in this vision, Jesus tells him to write a letter to the church in Ephesus. And it's a letter of both praise and rebuke. So, let's read Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But I've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So when I look at how this church in Ephesus is in Revelation, it kind of reminds me a lot of us here at Crosspoint that Ephesus was once this growing and healthy church, and they're still zealous for sound doctrine, for teaching, and for moral purity. And they ensure there's no false teaching in their church, and they're patiently enduring all the evil that's around them. Now Jesus also rebukes them for losing their first love, telling them that if they don't repent, their lampstand is going to be removed and they're no longer going to be his church. And so what Jesus lays out for them to do is in verse 5. He tells them that they must remember where they've fallen, repent, and then do the works that they used to do. And in verse 7, it says, then... Like, to the one who conquers, they'll be given life. So he tells them, remember and repent, and then you will live. Now, when we look at this, we need to ask a few questions here to help us understand just exactly what they're supposed to do. So, first of all, what do they need to remember? So, in verse 5, we see Jesus tells them to remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. From where have they fallen? Right in verse 4, that they've abandoned the love that they had at first. So what was this love like that they used to have? Um, So remember what we just said back in Acts, that in their love for God, that they're sharing the gospel to everyone around them, so much so that this entire region has heard the news about Jesus. And so many people are coming to faith in Jesus that silversmiths have to start a riot because they can't make any money anymore because no one's buying the idols that they're crafting. And then in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul tells them that he's constantly hearing of their faith in Christ and of their love for all the saints. And so 
Back then they were doing what Jesus tells us are the two great commandments. That number one, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Then number two, that you love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says that all the other commandments in the Bible, there's just subpoints of these two great commands. But what the Ephesians are doing now in Revelation, they're doing all these commands divorced from those two great commands. They're not doing them out of love. So instead, they've become just like the Pharisees in the Gospels, that they know their word, they know their doctrine, they know their commands, but they're doing it out of duty rather than out of love. So, when you think of the two great commands, Jesus also rewords that second great command to love your neighbor as yourself. In John 13, he tells them that you should love one another just as I have loved you. So, we're to love one another with the same kind of love that Jesus loves us with. Where greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. John 15. Or Romans 5.8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when we were enemies of God, dead in our sins and our trespasses, Christ died for us so that we would live. So how much more so should we love our sisters and our brothers in Christ? So after Jesus rewords that command in John chapter 13, he then tells them, he tells his disciples, this is how the whole world is going to know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. So if the Ephesians have lost their love for one another, now their witness is hindered, that they're unable to work towards the Great Commission to make disciples because the world looks at them and they don't see the love for one another that they used to have. And John also tells us that God is love. And because they've lost their love, they've also lost God. And this is why Jesus' rebuke to them is so severe, so serious. Because they've lost God. And he tells them, if you keep this up, you're no longer my church. You've gone too far. And so the next big question then we have to ask after knowing, all right, so this is what we have to remember, and this is why it's important, is why do we have to remember before we repent? Why can't we just repent and change our ways? Because if they were to just repent and start doing more good works for God, just like they used to do, and for others, but it's all devoid of remembering and regaining the love that they used to have, they'd be in the exact same state that they are now. Just doing everything out of duty because that's what they're supposed to do rather than as an overflow of love that they have. Plus, we can't repent out of our own volition. Second Timothy 2.25 tells us that God must grant us repentance. And in order to truly repent, we need to go back to the gospel and see God's loving kindness on display on the cross. Or as it says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it's God's loving kindness that leads us into repentance. So in order for the Ephesian church 
to once again have life, they need to remember, and then they need to repent. They have to be careful, though, in what exactly they're remembering. They're not remembering the old practical methodologies that they used to do to share the gospel. They aren't remembering the programs and activities their church used to do. They're not called to go back to these specific programs, these specific look or design of their fellowship or specific classes or a specific name or a specific type of pastor. And they aren't simply just remembering these two great commands. All right, I'm supposed to love God and love others. And what they're called to do is to remember the gospel because only God can turn death into life. And it's the gospel that actually empowers those two great commands. So remembering the gospel isn't just simply remembering that salvation in Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone. That's what it is as it says in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, but we have to also remember the verses 1 through 7 in Ephesians 2, that we used to be dead, a valley of dry bones, walking in disobedience no different than anyone else in the world, that we were wicked, wretched, rebellious, treasonous sinners, deserving the punishment of death and damnation. But then God opened our eyes to the gospel and gave us life, He gave us new hearts. He poured out his spirit into us and placed it within us and sealed it. And we have to remember this, that we love because he first loved us. So we remember and we repent and we'll live. So once we remember, now we have to let that love of Christ that dwells within us to overflow into repentance and good works. And our actions, they can't ever be divorced from this love of Christ. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he tells us that if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all, everything I have, and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. This love of Christ, it always thinks the best of someone. It doesn't assume wrong motives or twist their words around to think the worst of them. Love doesn't get upset when we have to do necessary changes to lead us into a better and healthy way. Love doesn't sabotage or go behind people's backs or spread rumors and gossip. Love doesn't try to grasp and control everything. It doesn't reject authority, and insist on its own way, on what we want. Instead, love puts the needs and desires of others above our own needs and desires. Love for our brothers and sisters in Christ doesn't mean we just talk to each other a couple times a week for a couple hours. It means we live side by side with one another, 
weeping with one another when one weeps, rejoicing with one another, helping one another, guiding one another. Love serves each other. So when we look at our church, calling a certain man or as a pastor here or keeping a certain program or doing things a specific way or even changing this or changing that, that's not ultimately going to help us because only God can turn what's dying into something that's alive. So remember the gospel, the whole gospel, every piece of it. And then let that overflow into living out the two great commands as a united family of believers in Christ, together adopted into one family as brothers and sisters living disciplined lives on mission, side by side, out of love. So remember and repent, and we will live. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would do a great work within us. Constantly renew us. Bring us to repentance over and over again. There's always things in our lives we need to turn from. So God, lead us into the way of truth, the way of understanding. Help us not to become just dull to the truth of the gospel, but let us see our sin clearly and see what it did to Christ on the cross. And yet also let that bring to our eyes just your great love and kindness and mercy and grace that you extend to your people that never deserved any of it, and yet you gave it to us. God, help us to accept that truth, not to think down on ourselves, but to just trust you in what you say. God, we ask that you would help us to be a healthy church. Wash us by the blood of your Son. Renew us, strengthen us, unite us, and guide us, Lord. We need you. We need you to be at work. No matter what we do, if you're not work at work in it, that's just pointless. So God, guide us through your Spirit and fill us your son's holy and precious name, we pray. Amen.